Uh, We're going to begin in verse uh, 14 and work our way through the end of this uh, this chapter. This is Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. If you would, uh, please just pray with me for a minute before we consider these things. Father, I pray that in these next few moments you would come and you would attend to your word, that uh, our eyes would be open and our, our ears would be unclogged so that we may be able to see and to hear the good news, uh, maybe for some of us the first time and maybe for some of us uh, the thousandth time. But would you be so kind to do that now? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, the thing that's really weird about Facebook is that you really can look at somebody's entire life without being seen at all. I mean, you know, this is why they call it Facebook stalking, right? I mean, you can look at somebody's info, their pictures, you know, uh, what's going on in their wall, all their friends, and they don't know you're doing it. I mean, you can really be a total creeper if you wanted to. But one of the things that we're going to do tonight is kind of, in a weird way, Facebook stalk the Apostle Paul. Because what he does is he, in our little passage... He's praying, and he tells you what he's praying, and if you know anything about prayer, it's very intimate business. So we get a direct window into the very heart of Paul and what he is praying for and why. If you remember anything about the book of Ephesians, maybe from earlier this semester, Ephesians is broken down into two halves. In the first half, Paul just kind of piles up everything that God has done by grace. You didn't do anything, you didn't deserve it, you didn't earn it, God does it all. And then in the second half, he begins to unpack how this grace concretely works itself out in your life. And so here we are kind of right before this changing point where he's transitioning from talking about all this gospel stuff to transition to talking about how this works out and takes shape in your life practically. And so he begins praying. And now you probably know why, because if you know anything about living, you know that putting this stuff into practice is unbelievably hard. I mean, he's praying for their growth. He's praying for their maturity. He's praying for them to be what the Bible calls uh, sanctified, which is God's gracious process of changing you to make you look more like Jesus. And again, if you know anything about this, you know this is unbelievably hard because you have these things that you don't know how to change in your life. You have that, that bad habit that you just can't break. You have that secret addiction that nobody knows about, but that you just can't shake off of your back. You can't control your anger or your resentment towards your roommate. You don't know what to do with your jealousy. It's just not going away. Or maybe you've had this experience where you do something you know you shouldn't have. You, you repent and, and you, you tell God and, and resolve that you're never going to do it again. And 
you do it again, right? Why is this so hard? And how can we change? How is there any hope that we can get out of these ruts that we find ourselves in? That is the question of tonight's passage. And so what I want to do is is show you that Paul kind of comes at this by breaking down four different components of what real spiritual growth is. What true spiritual growth looks like, how it operates, how it functions. So we're just going to look at these one at a time, okay? You can follow along in your handout. The first component of true spiritual growth is that it is organic in nature. It's organic in nature. Maybe you uh, noticed it in verse 16 where Paul begins to pray for them to be strengthened in their inward being. It's, it's kind of interesting. Let me read it in verse 16 again. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. What does that mean? What is he talking about? He's saying that Christian growth is organic in nature. It is something internal. You could contrast this with what some people have called mechanical growth, something that's external. So, for example, let's say you wanted to grow a pile of firewood. What would you do? You would just chop up firewood and kind of throw it on the pile, and it would eventually get bigger, and it would be growing. But it would only be growing numerically and externally. But this is not really the same way that, like, a child grows or a tree grows, where there's something actually alive and vital on the inside that's organically growing it and maturing it. And this is what he's praying for, for them to grow inwardly. Now, if you've ever sat down with me one-on-one over coffee or lunch, and if I feel like I know you well enough and I, and I kind of can sense that you have some sort of spiritual sensitivities, I will ask you this question. Hey, how do you feel like you're doing spiritually these days? Which is, I, I know it's a terrible question and you hate it, uh, but I like to ask it because I like to see how you squirm when you answer it. Because basically what you do, you, some weird switch gets flipped when I ask that question and you say, well, okay, I, I think I'm doing pretty good spiritually because I, I've, been, I've been going to church pretty consistently. Uh, I've been to Bible study. I missed last week, but you know, sometimes you have to study. Uh, I, I've been going to RUF. And you, start, you start listing all of these spiritual statistics. And it, is that weird to you? Is that, is that weird to hear that? Because it's weird for me to hear that. Because I didn't ask what you were doing spiritually. I asked how you were doing spiritually. There's this category error in our thinking where when we try to evaluate how we're doing spiritually, we just sort of look at our spiritual statistics, our pile of firewood, and say, look, I'm growing. I'm certainly a lot busier. I mean, I'm going to this, and I'm going to this, and I'm going to retreats, and I'm going to conferences, and I'm going to RUF, and Bible study, and church. And you start looking at your schedule and say, I'm certainly busier. Therefore, I must be growing spiritually. But don't you see, Paul is saying that is not what true spiritual growth looks like. That is external mechanical growth. If you want to know how, how you're doing spiritually, organically, internally, ask yourself these questions. Am I growing more patient with my roommate? Am I getting less stressed out about school and about tests and about projects? Am I apologizing more? Do I find myself you know, being less defensive and, and quicker just to ask for forgiveness more? A- am I actually loving Jesus more? Does, does he become more beautiful to me? Is he more beautiful to me now than he was maybe last year? Or, or ask yourself, are you moving towards the people that maybe like a year ago you wanted nothing to do with? This is what it means. This is, what, this is the, um, the fruit of true spiritual growth. Jesus says that you will know 
who somebody is. You will know the tree by the fruit. And I think he, in many ways he's referring to the fruit of the Spirit, which you'll find in Galatians 5. And what is, if you're familiar with the Bible at all, what does Paul say the fruit of the Spirit is? The fruit of the Spirit is prayer consistency and church attendance and No, it's love, it's joy, it's peace. These are internal characteristics. This is what it means to grow spiritually. If you hear anything on this point, hear this. Do not make the mistake of confusing spiritual activity with spiritual maturity. They're not the same thing. And this is why Paul is looking at you and saying, and praying for you to grow in your inward being, because true Christian, true spiritual growth is organic. And maybe the reason why you're discouraged with the way that you are growing is because you're just measuring it completely incorrectly. It's not about activity. It's about inward, organic characteristics. That's the first thing. True Christian, true growth, true spiritual growth is organic in nature. But here's the second thing. True spiritual growth is anchored in love. Here's where I get this. This is verse 17. He he says, uh, about halfway through the verse, and I pray that you be enrooted and established in love. Okay, we'll just stop right there. He's talking about growth, but now he starts bringing in metaphors. And when he says rooted, he's referring to like the the base of a tree, the base of a plant, the roots of a plant. When he talks about um, being established, he's talking about the the foundation of, of the growth of a building. So obviously he's talking about the foundation of growth. But he says that this foundation is based on love. But he's not talking about your love for God. He's talking about God's love for you. That is what the foundation is. That's what the basis is. That's what the the root system is, is that you are anchored in God's love. And then he continues. So let me just read back through it again, verse 17. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. It's a very famous verse because it's so poetic. I've seen it on your Facebook statuses before. It's, It's a beautiful verse, but don't gloss over what he's getting at. I mean, did you catch what he's praying for? He says, since you are anchored and rooted in love, I pray that you would grow up in a way that understands the very love that you're standing on. Did you catch that? He says, in other words, the reason why you are who you are is because of God's love to you in Jesus. And I pray that you would grow up in a way that actually takes in how expansive and vast that claim is. That is what he is praying for. And so what he does is he starts bringing in these dimensions, the, the width and the length and the height and the depth to try and expand your imagination and your vision of what Jesus' love for you actually is. Earlier this summer, uh, when the weather was a little cooler, oh, well, that's been nice the past few days, um, I went on a hike with my dog up uh, Elk Knob. If you've ever been up there, uh, it's a beautiful hike, except for the last... 200 yards or so because it's like this steep and it's miserable and my dog is fainting as we go but uh, we get up to the top and if you've you know if you've been ever been up there if you've ever been up you know on, on one of these you know mountain summits where you can just see for miles in every direction we get up there it's unbelievable it's beautiful it's like there is virginia i can see it there is grandfather mountain there's there's beach there's 
those ridiculous condos on, on sugar over there. I mean, it's like you can see everything miles in every direction. And if you're anything like me when you get up there, it's like, okay, I, I got to get a picture of this because I was like, I got to show this to Catherine when I get home. So I pull out my phone, which has a little camera on it, and I'm taking little pictures of it. It's like, oh, this is beautiful. This is unbelievable. And uh, put it in my pocket and I get home and I show Catherine. It's like, check these out. And you know, when you get home, they're just so lame when, when you know, you're trying to compare them. You know what I'm talking about? It's like, it can't take in that kind of expansiveness. It just it can't do it. But you know what? That's, Paul, that's what Paul is praying for here. He is praying that we would take in that which is untakeable. I mean, did you notice the weirdness of the language of verse 19? Just look at it again. He says, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. He wants you to know that which surpasses knowledge. Now, how do you wrap your mind around that? Here's the question. Why is Paul praying for a church to know the love of Jesus? To take in how big it is? Because you would think that's the reason why the church claims to be the church is because they know the love of Jesus, right? Why would he pray for people who already love God to take in how much God loves them? Here's the reason why. Because I think Paul knows that it is the default setting of every human heart to live unloved. It's just the basic operating system of your heart that says, nobody can love me like that. I have to earn it. And Paul is saying, no, you don't have to earn it. You are standing in it. You already have it. I mean, just take in what Paul is trying to, ta- try- trying to teach us and trying to tell us. He is saying that apart from your goodness, apart from everything that you've ever done, God loves you. You did not deserve anything. In fact, the only thing that you deserved was God's displeasure and his wrath. And the gospel is that Jesus came and took that displeasure and took that wrath for you. And now you are unbelievably secured and anchored in the love of God towards you. Wrap your mind around that. Let that settle in for one second. That the king of the universe has no problems with you if you are in Jesus. You are anchored in love. And he's praying that we would take in that which is untakeable. And he is saying, stop trying to pay for that which you already get for free. It's not about earning God's love because you already have it. Paul looks at that instinct in all of us and says, you don't have to do that anymore. Stop trying to pay for that which you already get for free. You are anchored in love. I just want to make two little applications and draw out some implications on this point before we move on. First, a word of comfort. For those of you in this room who identify yourselves as Christians and you come in here and you feel beat up and you feel like, ah, there is that sin I just cannot shake. There is this thing, there's this secret addiction nobody knows about and I want them to know about, but nobody should know about it because they would hate me or they would think I was weird if they knew about it. This looks at you and says, there is no amount of sin, no amount of shame, no wall that you can throw up that God has not already busted down. You are secure. You are anchored in the love of God. And that is the good news of the gospel to you tonight. But secondly, a word of caution, a word of concern. For some of you in this room, you identify yourselves as Christians, and yet you don't believe any of this. And what I mean by that is, You claim to know the love of God towards you in Jesus, and yet, if we looked at your life, your life is still wrapped up with this 
need to compare yourself to other people. To look across the aisle and feel like, I'm not as good as that person, or I'm not as put together as that person. And as a result, your entire life is just c- competitive and built on this comparison game where you feel better than those kind of people, but you feel intimidated by these kinds of people. And as a result, your entire life is consumed with you. And it's crippling. And this looks at you and says, listen, you, are, you can be freed from this competitive, self-indulgent slavery. You are anchored in the free love of God. And so what this, the invitation of this text is for you to go back, believe the gospel again, take a big deep breath of God's love for you in Jesus, and now start living like it is true, because it is. Paul looks at us and says, true spiritual growth, it is, uh, it is organic in nature, it is anchored in the free love of Jesus. And thirdly, it is nurtured in community. Now, I, I got this point from one of my friends, Les Newsome. Uh, I've read, I read this passage several times, and I missed it until he brought it out, because it's easy to miss. It's right there in this little dinky prepositional phrase in verse 18. You see it right there? Together with all the saints. Very interesting. He's praying, Paul's praying, not just that individuals would take in the expansiveness of God's, loves to, God's love to us in Jesus. He is praying that we would do so together with all the saints. He's talking about community. He's talking about the church. If you've been around RUF this semester, this may sound like a broken record because Paul keeps bringing it up over and over and over, and he will continue to bring it up over and over and over, and so therefore, we'll keep talking about it. But here's what he's saying. You cannot know the love of God in a tangible, experiential way by yourself. The the context with which the love of God actually takes flesh and becomes real and uh, you can kind of sink your teeth into it is in the context of other people. Let me um, throw this out. Have you ever found it interesting that the ebb and flow of your spiritual progress, your spiritual development, is in many ways based on your involvement with other people? I mean, think about it, for example, from the standpoint of uh, winter breaks or summer breaks. I mean, you, you realize that these, these breaks away from school can either make you or break you. Because what happens is that you are here and you are immersed in friends and community for nine months. And then you leave and you go back home. And all of your friends from college are kind of scattered throughout, you know, going all back to their houses. Some of them are staying in Boone. You go back home to your... Uh, homestead, and uh, all of your, your high school friends are gone because they're either working or they're doing something at camp, and you're there by yourself for two, three months. And you know what that's like, right? You get bored, and you get lonely, and you become spiritually empty. Or just think about it from the standpoint of if you isolate yourself from community here at App. I mean, some of you who've kind of pulled off and you kind of live away, live off campus, live by yourself, then how would you evaluate your spiritual life in those moments. It's interesting. There's a, there's a direct correlation between your spiritual progress and your involvement in community. And so the question is, is this how you think about your friends? Do you look at them to say, these people are holding me together spiritually. I desperately need them to be spiritually sane. For my spiritual development, I need other people. Or... Do you just look at your friends as people you just kind of hang out with and uh, play intramurals with and kind of chill out and crossroads with? And maybe these are the people that one day will be my, my bridesmaids or my groomsmen, but at the end of the day, these are not the kind of people that I look to to keep me spiritually sane. 
But Paul is saying that the context, the primary context with which you will know the love of God is in the context of relationships, in the context of community. Maybe you've heard this expression, I don't know. Um, Truth is always caught more than it is taught. Meaning, I can come up here and just tell you God loves you all day long. But if I'm not showing you in kind of tangible, practical ways, then the love of God just becomes sort of this artificial, philosophical abstraction. It has no meaning. It's just totally disconnected from real life. Let me, let me try and explain what I'm talking about. A, a few years ago, when my wife and I were still living in Charlotte, uh, we had some folks over to dinner. And uh, my wife was very gracious and prepared this meal. And, uh, you know, the, our friends came over and we, you know, we sit around, we're enjoying the meal. And we're the kind of family where it's like, okay, everybody's done eating. Leave your plates there. We'll do the dishes later. Let's go into kind of the family room and chill out. So we're sitting around in the family room, but we, we had one of these houses with, with kind of no wall between the kitchen and the living room. So Catherine's able to go into the kitchen and still kind of be involved in the conversation while she's cleaning up pots and pans. And we're kind of hanging out, chilling. For whatever reason, Catherine had to leave early that night. She had like a meeting or a Bible study, I can't remember. And our, our guests had to leave early as well. So basically, everybody's kind of leaving at the same time except me. And Catherine looks at me and says, hey, by the time I get back, can you just clean up the rest of the dishes? And, um, you know, I'll see you in a couple hours. Like, yeah, yeah, totally. So she leaves and I do what anybody would do, flop down on the couch and watch television. <laughs> so I'm engaged in my show. And... Uh, Two hours pass, and Catherine comes home and sees me laying there on the couch, and there are all the plates right where they were, and all the foods like now encrusted onto the plates, and she's obviously wounded and hurt by this, and decides in that moment to vocalize her hurt and her frustration to me. Okay, first of all, I'm in the middle of a show here, and um, second of all, who are you to demand... Anything from my schedule. And of course, if you know how relationships work, this is, this is going downhill quickly, and it does. And so for the next few hours, we're in the thick of it. And uh, I guess it took two hours or so for me to realize, oh, okay, Catherine cooked the food, uh, cleaned up most of the dishes, asked me to just take care of a little bit of dishes, and I couldn't do it. And, and I was frustrated and angry at her for asking me to, because this is my schedule. This is my life. And what she does at the end of this conversation floored me, because she looked at me, and she said, Matt, I love you, and I forgive you. In that moment, she was showing me Jesus. She, she, she was Jesus with skin on right there in front of me, because here I was, deserving nothing but her anger and her frustration and her wrath. And I forfeited everything good from her. And she came to me with open arms, welcoming me graciously and forgiving me. And so it's like, oh, that's what the Bible means when it says that Jesus forgives us of our sin. It's not just our sin. It's, oh, in these moments when I'm a lazy, selfish jerk to my wife. That's what it means when it says Jesus loves me in these moments. Finally, the love of God had some skin on it. I tasted concretely what it meant for me. And you will not know what that means unless you have friends in your life who are sacrificially laying down their lives for you where you can see with your eyes tangibly that's what it means for Jesus to love me and to forgive me. You cannot do this by yourself. You need other people. Otherwise, it just, it's all just 
philosophy and abstractions. And it's not just about the love of God. It could be anything. It, it could be your sin. You will, you will not know the extent and the uniqueness of your sin unless you have friends who love you enough to come alongside of you and say, hey, we've got to talk about you because I see things that you don't. And then you will see it in the context of community, in the context of relationship. And the question is, do you have the kind of friendships where this can take place, where, where you can have the love of Jesus embodied right in front of you? And are you the type of friend to your friends that is embodying Jesus to them? Do you have, does, does your relationship, do they look like this? Do they have this kind of depth where you're this honest, this vulnerable, this real, where you are showing each other Jesus in the way that you love, in the way that you forgive, in the way that you expose each other's sins? Because you will not know the love of God tangibly, concretely, apart from community. And that's why Paul prays that they would grow up in such a way together that takes in the love of God. So, Paul's praying for them to grow up, for them to mature. He says true spiritual growth is uh, organic in nature. It is internal and therefore not mechanical. He says that it is anchored in love, meaning that it is founded and it is fueled by the gospel of grace alone. It is nurtured in community, meaning that you cannot grow apart from involvement with other people. All this sound familiar? Hopefully. (laughs) One last thing. Because I know some of you are here going, okay, Matt, how does all this work, though? What do I do? What do I do to get growing like this? What what, what am I supposed to do to kind of activate all this stuff that you're talking about? The last thing that you have to hear is that true spiritual growth is enabled in God. And this is the last uh, two verses of this passage, that it is enabled in God. Let me just read it, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Just, just try and take that first sentence in. Let it settle. To him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. God is able to do it, and he will do it, and he is doing something in those that are his that is so much more glorious than you could ever comprehend. He is, he is the one that is at work, and this is our only hope. This is why we do this. This is why we come in here and sit in these weird chairs, because our hope is that when we open up the Bible, God will do something and actually begin to change us. He is the one that is at work. There's this great little prayer by one of the early church fathers named St. Augustine, And here's his prayer. If you can wrap your head around this, you'll understand everything that we're talking about tonight. Here's what he says. Lord, ask what you will and give what you ask. Ask what you will and give what you ask. He's saying, Lord, ask whatever you want. But you're going to to have to be the one that gives the very thing that you ask. Here's the assumption. God enables us to do that to which he calls us. Did you, did you catch that? God is the one that enables us to do the very thing that he calls us to because he is calling us to something great. If you are someone that is united to Jesus, what he is calling you to be is a, a kingdom, a community of peace and of justice right here at App. He is calling you to be people who speak love and blessings and forgiveness to each other. 
He is calling you to be someone that loves your enemies. He is calling you to be someone that lays down your life for the poor. This is an enormous calling. And thankfully, he is the one that enables us to do the very thing that he calls us to. God is the one that is at work. just want to draw out two implications and then we're done. Okay, here's the first implication. Knowing that God is at work directly confronts all of our cynicism and our skepticism. It directly confronts our cynicism and our skepticism because God is not remote. God's not out there. He is in here, present, at work, doing stuff. And there are some of you in this room who have pieced out on Christianity altogether, or at least are maybe slowly walking away from Jesus because, you know, you tried it, you gave the whole Christianity thing a shot, and it just wasn't working for you. You know, you didn't change in the ways that you thought. You didn't have the experience that you were anticipating. You didn't, you know, change in the, the time frame that you had set up. And what this does is this looks at you and it says, maybe the problem is not in the message of the Bible. Maybe the problem is in you. Because the message of the Bible is that the king of the universe is the one that is at work. And he will do it. And that is a real message. Think of it like this. Let's say you're sitting in your room and you're trying to listen to the radio. And for whatever reason, you can't get any channels. I mean, they're all scratchy. They're all jumbled up. And you start thinking, man, what's the deal with all these radio towers all over here? They must be all busted. They must be all broken. They're not transmitting any signals. But why is your assumption that the problem is out there with the, with the radio towers? Why not assume that the problem is maybe with your radio receiver? Because when the Bible looks at you and it says God is the one that is at work and will enable change, it means it. That is a real message that is being transmitted. And this directly looks at you and it says if it's not working for you, the problem is not in the message. The problem is in you. This directly confronts your cynicism and your skepticism. But here's the second thing this does. This directly contradicts your despair and your disappointment because God is the one that is at work. And some of you, I know, you come into this room every single week and you really feel beat up where you feel like, man, my grades are tanking, school is overwhelming me, I've got family that is sick, I've got relationships that are messed up, I've got a spiritual life that is in shambles, and I come in here hanging by a thread. And this looks at you and says, you know what? God is not at work in spite of your failures and your weaknesses. God is at work through them and in them. God looks at you and says, you do not have to be ashamed of your situation and of your story. Because it's in those places, your disappointments with your family, your disappointments with you, your disappointments with your boyfriend, your girlfriend, those are the places where the Bible comes in and says, God is at work here. In these messed up places, God is at work bringing healing and restoration to that which is broken and bruised. He is at work. He is the one doing it. God is the one that is at work. And this is what directly contradicts all of your disappointments with yourself and all of your shame and all of your despair. God is the one that is at work changing us in a way that is real and organic in nature in a way that is grounded and, and anchored in the very love and the free grace of the gospel, in a way that is done together, not just by ourselves, but nurtured in community and enabled by his free grace because he is the one who is at work. And this is good news. I pray that you would believe it, and I pray that I would too. Let's pray. Father, I uh, ask that you would uh, give us eyes to see the goodness of the gospel.
that you are the one that is at work, and therefore, despite our shame, despite our failures, despite our weakness, you are the one that is changing us and uh, making us more beautiful, making us more humble, making us more bold, making us more like your son, Jesus. We know that you are at work slowly but surely. Give us um, patience and give us hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.